From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They were all in one place, the nine Democrats running to oust U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, and we sent our producer Anthony Cotton to this candidate forum in Longmont over the weekend. He'll join us with a picture of a race that's really heating up. Then, for every ton of cement that's made, two tons of carbon dioxide's released into the atmosphere. If only that could be captured. Well, it can. Cement is the low-hanging fruit of CO2 emission. Learn about a cement plant in Florence, Colorado, where just such an experiment is planned. And later, women may be undergoing unnecessary pelvic exams. It has a lot to do with when these providers got their training. People tend to stick with what they learned back in their residency. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a crowded Democratic field. And this time we're not talking about the presidential race, but about the Coloradans who want to kick Republican Cory Gardner out of the U.S. Senate. I think I can call out Cory Gardner for not being the independent voice he promised to be. He decided with running. We have to have a scientist on the science committee. There are currently none. Cory Gardner's there, though. Uh, we'll convict him and remove him from office. I mean, Cory Gardner's shown no appetite for actually fulfilling his constitutional responsibility. Okay, the voices of three of the nine Dems running. And over the weekend, they all gathered in Longmont. We asked producer Anthony Cotton to attend this candidate forum and share what stood out in terms of policy and politics. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Ryan. Here we are. It's actually 2020, and Election Day is a little more than nine months away. I know we're getting there. The forum reminded me of the children's book, Where the Wild Things Are, the line, Let the Wild Rumpus Start. Uh I think you could sense that things were becoming a little more real for the candidates, and things are only going to pick up from here. We're just a bit more than a month away from the Colorado caucuses, which a number of the Senate candidates are hoping to use to get onto the primary ballot. Uh The caucus is March 7th. The primary is June 30th. And remember, you don't have to be a Democrat to take part in that. Right, a semi-open primary. As I said, nine candidates in the field. And that's after a number of people dropped out, some of them citing the entry of former Governor John Hickenlooper into the race, that the just wasn't enough oxygen in the room, I guess. Is Hickenlooper a shoe-in for the nomination, Anthony Cotton? I think he has to be considered the favorite. Obviously, he has name recognition, and he's way out in front in terms of money. He raised almost $3 million in the fourth quarter of 2019 alone. That was double the next closest candidate, former Speaker of the House Andrew Romanoff. But I don't know that I'd call him a lock. And the forum was interesting in that it was held in Longmont, a city in which Hickenlooper, as governor, sued in 2013 after voters there adopted a ban on fracking. Now, he got a nice reception from the audience, but, but his, his position on fracking certainly created an opening for some of the other candidates to pounce on his record like Diana Bray, who's a psychologist and a climate activist from Inglewood. I spoke with her after her appearance. He basically is trying to pitch himself as someone who has instituted, while he was governor, great methane regulations, but that is a tiny drop in the bucket. And what he's done in, instead, actually, is promoted oil and gas so much to the point where we can't breathe in this state now. She she mentioned methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Of course, Hickenlooper disagreed with her framing of him, saying fossil fuels have an expiration date. Well, I I think we've got to accelerate uh, how quickly we get to to make oil and gas obsolete. 
We, should, we can fight over fracking. Uh, but the bottom line is we're down to eight or ten years and transforming all coal-fired generation to wind, solar, and batteries. So those are the kinds of market initiatives that, that have a chance to really change this country in real time. Ryan, the forum was sponsored by Longmont Latinx Voice, and its purpose was to get the candidates' views on issues important to the Hispanic community, immigration, education, health care. The turnout was strong, an estimated 400 people. But what I found was many of the attendees were more interested in their own retail political issues, like vaccinations or inclusiveness. Huh. This is one of the attendees, Leslie Ogeda of Boulder. I grew up in Boulder, um, third generation, and there's becoming a larger, larger disparity in people of race and color, in my mind. And so I want to make sure that whoever's getting elected really wants to decrease that. Ogeda said it was important that the candidates represent that lost population, as she put it. She said she was impressed by a couple of the female candidates, Stephanie Rose Balding and Lorena Garcia. And that was really reflective of of how the day went. Romanoff was there all day working the room and was available to people. But it seemed like the five women candidates there, Spalding, Garcia Bray, Trish Zornio, and Michelle Ferregno Warren, they were the ones who resonated with the crowd. You wrote a story, Anthony, at CPR.org about the female candidates and some of the issues they're facing in the race. And I'll say that soon, Colorado Matters will have conversations with all the Senate candidates, the incumbent included, who has a standing invitation to be on our show. Uh, but when it comes to the women in this race, what stood out to you? It was the stories that they told about being women on the campaign trail. It came up in every conversation I had with them. And each of them had kind of a unique take on what it meant to them. Zornio said there's research that shows most people regard strong leaders as being over six feet tall. Well, she's five foot one, although she said five three in heels. Uh, but she also told me about some of the other challenge, challenges she's recently faced. In the last week alone, I actually had uh, not one, but two supporters, people I did not know, I should mention, uh, actually come up and kiss me. I had one pat me on the ass, pardon my language, and I had another one, all in the last week, look me up and down, straight to top to bottom. Well, that's icky. Yeah. Uh, the challenge politically, uh, how they differentiate themselves is true for men and women, of course. But each of the women think they have a path to the nomination. Spalding ran for Congress in 2018 in the 5th District, which encompasses Colorado Springs, and she got 126,000 votes in that conservative enclave. So she thinks that will translate well across the state. Zornio thinks she's registering well in non-traditional channels like social media. She said a recent tweet that she posted on her very Republican family actually considering Democratic presidential candidates reach more than 600,000 people. But back to the money. I mean, it's one thing to do well on social media. It's uh, another thing to raise money. Right. Raise. And remember, we said Hickenlooper had raised almost $3 million in the last three months of 2019. Yeah. Well, the latest set of available numbers had Spalding raising $100,000. That was the most of any of the female candidates. Again, Zornio and some of the other women would argue that the game is rigged against women candidates. And to that end, when Hickenlooper entered the race and was immediately endorsed by the National Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, 
Bray, Spalding, Garcia, and Warren were all co-signees on a letter that accused the organization of asking them to just step aside and defer to the male candidate. Mm -hmm. Now, meanwhile, Michelle Ferrigno Warren's campaign literature has a simple message. It's time, Colorado. And she points out that Colorado gave women the right to vote even before the federal government did. And here we are, 126 years later, almost 127, and eight of our nine congressional delegates are men. And so, and then we've never had a woman senator, of course, we've never had a woman governor or mayor of Denver. So Warren also points out that a woman who shares her last name, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, overcame long odds not only to become the first female U.S. senator in that state, but is also, of course, a frontrunner for the Democratic presidential nomination. So she takes some hope from that uh, for her success. Okay. No actual relation? No relation. Okay. Anthony, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Colorado Matters producer and reporter Anthony Cotton with voices from the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. As the Democratic primary gets closer, we'll sit down with the candidates one-on-one. Making cement produces a huge amount of carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, of course. But there are plans to capture that carbon, even sell it. And it's the focus of Disruptors today, our coverage of revolutionary ideas in business. A Canadian company has this carbon capture technology and plans to test it at a cement plant in Florence, Colorado. Claude Letourneau is CEO of Svante and join me from Vancouver. Claude, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. This cement plant, which is owned by a company called Lafarge Wholesome, emits greenhouse gases by burning fuel. But the rock that's used to make the cement is also to blame because it releases carbon dioxide. First off, give us a sense of scale here. How much does the cement industry contribute to greenhouse gases? Well, as an example, when you need to build uh, bridges or buildings, you need cement. And the cement basically uh, is taking a rock out of the nature. And when you eat it up, you get the cement out of it and then the CO2 coming off. So for every uh, ton of cement being made, there's about two tons of CO2 being emitted. So that's a lot of CO2. It, it's about 5% of all the CO2 being emitted by all industries, automotive, power plants, and, and man-made CO2, 5%. And the company we're working with, Lafarge Olson, has been tagged as being the largest CO2 em- single company in the world. So this is not something you're very proud of and you want to be, but this is just intrinsic to the way they make the cement, and there's no other way that they can go around not emitting CO2. So they need to do something about managing the carbon. At this plant in Florence, which is northwest of Pueblo, you hope to capture more than 700,000 tons of carbon dioxide a year. Your technology starts with a filter. So how does it work? So it's a unique uh, microfilter. We use nanotechnology to catch and release the CO2. And if you were to put this in about the size of a sugar cube and you were to expose the CO2 uh, to it, the CO2 would not see the size of a sugar cube. It would see what's inside that cube, which is about equivalent to a football field. Wow. It's a high-surface area material that we've nano-engineered. 
we catch the CO2 at the bottom of the chimney going up. You know, you have an industrial plant. You always see a big plume coming out of these plants. So at the bottom yeah. of it, we just put our system. So it's an end-of-the-pipe solution. and But it's a very low concentration CO2, maybe 20%. We put the filter there. It goes through our filter, and we release within about a minute pipeline-ready CO2, which is a CO2 now concentrated at 95%. You want to bring that to market, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Yes. This is fascinating. These materials are very small and yet have vast surface area. Do you have a lot of those, like little cubes in any single plant or just one? On a very small plant, we have about 30 tons of this material inside the filters. Oh, okay. That's a lot of it. (laughs) Now, once you capture this CO2 from the plant in Florence, and you've concentrated it, what will happen to it? It will go down probably 500 miles down to a company called Occidental, who is a world leader in handling CO2 for storage and what it's called sequestration. But So they have different places where they can put the CO2, either in a pure reservoir, what we call a saline reservoir, where you have salt water at the bottom of that well, And when the CO2 gets into it, it basically locks itself in for life. Ah, okay. Or Or? they basically use it in a depleted oil reservoir, and they get the last drop of oil that normally they would not have gotten out of that oil. But it's a good thing for the environment, even though it's perceived as being bad because you're getting oil out of that process, because you're storing the CO2 anyway, and in the process, you're getting oil, And the amount of CO2 that uh, this oil will produce over its lifetime when it goes into making gasoline for your car and so far is equivalent to the CO2 you've already stored it. So it's like taking a credit card and before you go and spend a $100, you will have basically put $100 in your credit card before you spend that money. Well, interesting, because there are the two avenues you've described there. One is to just store it and keep it. The other is to get it underground and free up other fossil fuels. Are you less excited about that second option, given that it does actually result in the burning of more fossil fuels? I call this a necessary suffering before we get there, because ultimately you want to be able to manage your, your fossil fuel, granted, But today, the reality is that we keep consuming a lot of fossil fuel, regardless of what's happening or not in carbon capture, and it keeps adding up in the atmosphere. So I'd rather see someone taking that CO2 today, storing the CO2 and having a benefit, even though it's tied up to a process where you are extracting some fossil fuel. Hmm. It's not like we're going to shut down that uh, fossil fuel uh, tab overnight. I want to say that there's already a pipeline taking carbon dioxide from Colorado to Texas. And one reason you chose the cement plant in Florence for the first installation was its proximity to this Sheep Mountain pipeline. It gives access to a market. But beyond the oil industry, is there anyone else who'd want to make use of carbon dioxide? Or is there anyone who might even stand to make money from its underground storage if it's just there lingering with the salt? So there's two two aspects of your question. One is, is there a use for CO2 so you can make a chemical or something that would be good? So the answer is yes. And I'll give you some very good example. I can take CO2 and I can put it in Coca-Cola and make 
Coca-Cola with the bubbles uh, coming out, uh, sparkling water. But the amount of, of CO2 you need for this, insignificant. And in a way, when you open up your mineral water and then the, you know, the bubbles popped out, what do they do? They, the CO2 goes back in the atmosphere. So you haven't done much. You've done a cycle of carbon management of a few weeks. The time you bottle it and you open it and you drink it. Yeah. The long-term way of dealing with this thing massively with the problem we have now is to take that CO2 and store it underground. Yeah, back to that storage idea. It seems to me that if there were you know, incentives, tax credits for carbon capture, and, and the United States provides some of those, I think, that would make the storage more financially feasible. Absolutely. So the companies who have the knowledge and the expertise and the financial capabilities of being able to do this thing safely for 100 years are the oil and gas. The problem is that they're perceived as the enemy because they're the source of the problem of fossil fuel being used. But at the same time, they're the partners we need to work with to safely do this. The question is, if you reverse the flow now and you start storing CO2 in all these reservoirs that they've built up over all these years to extract fossil fuel, it's going to cost about $50 to do so. $30 to capture, $20 to pipe and store safely. So who pays for that $50 today? Uh, nobody. Nobody, okay. Nobody. So the only guys today who are willing to give you $20 for that CO2 are a few companies like Occidental in Texas because they're doing it in a process of extracting some oil out of it. And eventually, we need a price on carbon that somebody's going to pay for. Well, I'll give you a very good example of what's happening today in the world. Amazon, Microsoft. If you track the news in the last few weeks, you probably saw Microsoft making a pledge that by 2030, 10 years from now, they will be net zero. They will take all the CO2 they emit in all of their processes and they will basically make sure that it's managed and it doesn't go in the atmosphere. That's a lot of CO2. So where is Amazon and, um, and Microsoft emitting CO2? They're using it when they, you, they have data centers, and it's consuming a lot of electricity to run all the computers, yes? This is about 2.5% of all the world's CO2 emission is coming from data centers. And you probably heard about a technology called 5G that's coming out for data management and processing in telecom. Yeah. Well, that technology will double the use of electricity. We will be 5%. So the world's largest emitter of CO2 in the near future will be the Microsoft and the Amazon of the world. But what they basically pledge with this thing is that they will basically pay about $100 per ton for that CO2 because that's what they can afford in putting in, in the price of goods and services that deliver to all of us. So just to bring this back to the conversation where we, where we started, what you're saying is that these underground reservoirs could be the sort of bank accounts that work with the carbon currency above ground. Yeah. Okay. But somebody needs to monetize that CO2. And right now, that's the challenge that we have. So the only one monetizing it to a certain level, which is $20, is a few oil and gas companies. The ones who can monetize this thing for a very large amount of CO2 storage, right now, it sounds like it's going to be the high-tech industry. And they're willing to pay $100 per ton for that CO2. Well, this has been fascinating, Claude, because it's about... Cement, but it's also about so much more than that. In a way, cement is a sentinel 
of something larger that could be happening. Cement is the low-hanging fruit of CO2 emission. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Claude Latourneau is CEO of Svante in Canada. He joined us for Disruptors, our coverage of new ideas in business. His company plans to test its carbon capture system at a cement plant in Florence, Colorado. But a testament to the challenges ahead, the earliest the filters could be up and running is 2024. A listener's aha moment now in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. Joseph Rouse of Denver caught our Colorado Wonders story Monday about the resurgence of peregrine falcons. Decades ago, scientists moved the birds into downtowns, including Denver's. That's because skyscrapers are kind of like cliffs in nature. Our story described how the birds hunt. Here's Aaron Katzner of the Peregrine Fund. They do what we call hunting on the wing, which means they hunt in the air. They hunt other birds almost primarily, and they will ball up their feet and actually punch their prey out of the sky. And I've heard of people, you know, sitting at a cafe outside in a city, all of a sudden having a pigeon fall into their lap, which I think would be an alarming uh, lunch activity. But when you are sharing a space with Peregrine, you're going to see all sorts of different things. And that was Joseph's aha moment. He tweeted this, while attending my kid's school picnic downtown at Benedict Fountain Park, a bloodied, mangled pigeon hit the ground a foot away from me, wasn't near any trees, the sky was clear, had no idea what and how it had happened, now I know. We always welcome your feedback. So if we tell you something you didn't know and you're pleased as punch, we'd love to hear about it. Alternatively, if there's something we don't know that you think we should, reach out as well. Find all the ways to contact us at cpr.org connect. You're so That's a song by the Falcons, by the way. Okay, if you're free tomorrow evening, come see Radio in the Making and learn about a really important story. I'm going to be at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, hosting a conversation about so-called forever chemicals, which can threaten the environment and public health. One of our guests, the attorney whose fight against a major chemical company inspired the new film Dark Waters. That's chemicals, I'm telling you. I'm seeing documents I don't understand. They're hiding something. That chemical. What if you drank it? Drank it? It's like saying, what if I swallowed a tire? What if whatever's killing those cows is in the drinking water? The event is free, starts at 7 p.m. Wednesday at Bunker Auditorium on the Mines campus. I've tweeted a link to the event at CPR Warner. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why young women often face unnecessary pelvic exams at the doctors. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio continues to bring you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. 
During this special coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. For teenage girls, pelvic exams can be invasive and uncomfortable, and for many, they may also be unnecessary. This month, a study found that an estimated 2.6 million young women got a pelvic exam in last year, and more than half of those exams were potentially unneeded. Miriam Giahi is an OBGYN and researcher at the CU School of Medicine. In 2011, she co-wrote a study that also found pelvic exams may become obsolete with new technology. Giahi spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. There are a couple of different types of pelvic exams, bimanual and pap smear. Briefly, what are these tests? Sure. So a bimanual exam is when a provider is placing two fingers inside a woman's vagina and feeling for the cervix and then palpating with their abdominal hand for how big the uterus feels um, and feeling around for the ovaries as well. So a hand on the stomach. Yes. And then um, a pap smear is associated with a speculum exam. So a speculum exam is where we place often a metal or plastic device inside the woman's vagina in order to visualize the cervix. And so it involves pressure and opening um, in order to see the cervix. And then things like pap smears can be collected and also swabs for sexually transmitted infections can also be collected. And what kind of health conditions you mentioned, obviously, for sexually transmitted infections, but what other kinds of health conditions could pelvic exams help doctors identify? So if a woman's coming in with complaints of abnormal discharge, that would be a reason to do a speculum exam to look inside. Um, If a woman is having um, pain with intercourse, it might be um, worth looking inside, collecting um, swabs, visualizing how the um, vaginal walls look, also doing a bimanual exam to feel um, if there's any places of tenderness. Based on the current guidelines, How often should women get these exams? So the guidelines have changed quite a bit over the past few years. It used to be just bread and butter that every time a woman, a teenager, went to her gynecologist, the idea was do a routine annual bimanual exam, do a speculum exam, and get collect a pap smear. But we've really changed those guidelines um, mainly because of changing technology. We've learned that it's not necessary to test women for cervical cancer screenings before the age of 21 unless they have risk factors like HIV because the reality is as many women are exposed to viruses like HPV and we really don't see that there are issues until the HPV is persistent in their later years. So now guidelines start at age 21. We start doing pap smears and it used to be even if it was normal, you had to come back the following year and get it. But now if they're normal, we usually wait to every three years. And at age 30, we're even able to um, space it out to every five years if their HPV test is negative. With respect to bimanual exams, really, I mean, if an, it's an asymptomatic wom- woman, there's really no need to do a, a bimanual exam. I mean, if she is symptomatic, having painful periods or things like that, it might be indicated to feel her uterus, see if there's a chance that she has something like fibroids or something contributing to that bleeding. But the reality is, is that feeling her uterus has really no real reason when she's not having any symptoms or issues. And the American College of Gynecology actually changed their recommendation in 2012, right? Correct. They changed it that in an asymptomatic woman, a bimanual exam is not necessary. And you've been saying for nearly a decade that doctors should be performing fewer bimanual pelvic exams. 
The College of Gynecology changed their recommendations eight years ago. Then this new study from the Journal of American Medical Association comes out and says doctors likely performed millions of unnecessary exams last year. Why are practitioners so slow to change? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons that go into it. I think um, it has a lot to do with when um, these providers got their training. People tend to stick with what they learned back in their residency. And if that was 10, 20 years ago, they may still just be kind of doing that. That's what they know. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, while ACOG has made these change in recommendations, it's in one, you know, opinion article. And um, it's possible that many providers have not read that article and seen that. Um, and there's also concerns that, you know, there may be financial incentives to go ahead and do unnecessary exams and get, unfortunately, you know, reimbursed for that um, at the expense of the patients. And doctors are required to do continuing education. I wonder how it's possible with that that so many doctors are missing that change in recommendation. Yeah, so, you know, there's so much to know as an OBGYN, and every year there's so much new data and recommendations. So, you know, with respect to continuing medical education, for example, often we will have to do certain articles every year, certain amount of articles to prove that we are meeting the requirements for continuing medical education. But, you know, you get to choose amongst a lot of different articles what to do. So while myself, who's interested in contraception and adolescent health, may choose that article about well women exams, you know, another provider who's more interested in um, the latest in you know, cancer treatments may choose different articles. So it, it's it's very likely that many providers are missing these articles and recommendations. And it's not really feasible to learn everything new that's coming out. Yeah, we all try our best, but it, it is hard to stay on top of everything. Are there benefits to performing a routine pelvic exam on a woman who's not showing symptoms? I think you already covered this. Yeah, we've found that, you know, the reality is, is that often doing a routine exam on an asymptomatic woman not only puts her in an uncomfortable position, literally, but it also often leads to unnecessary tests. So a provider might feel around and then think, oh, maybe her uterus is a little bit bigger and then get an ultrasound. And, you know, that causes anxiety for the patient. And re the reality is often the ultrasounds are normal. She might end up getting a biopsy that she didn't need. So really, we're seeing a lot of implications. We're seeing implications to patients in terms of the how it's uncomfortable. We're seeing implications to the anxieties about getting tests and waiting for them. We're seeing financial implications to the healthcare system when we're ordering tests that are not necessary. So there are some real stakes to this. Mm -hmm. And I think that anxiety is a big one because if young women associate going to the doctor with these invasive exams, they may even avoid it altogether. Is that right? Correct. And that's really where myself and my collaborators, my mentor, who we really come from a public health perspective and a family planning perspective, you know, we really don't want to deter the young girls from coming in and getting information, sexual education, getting resources for contraception if that's what they want. But it's likely that, you know, if their friend goes to the gynecologist and, you know, tells all the other girls in the locker room how awful that exam was, that's going to deter some of her friends from coming in and seeking out um, potentially the help she needs. And that deterrent can be a real public health concern and concern for those individuals. Correct. Obviously, the onus here is not on patients, but how do we better empower young women to stand up for themselves at the doctor's office? 
Yeah, I think, you know, we need to do this with respect to many things. Um, I think I see it as potentially actually having good comprehensive sex education, getting away from abstinence-only education programs. But with comprehensive sex education programs, we can educate women about their bodies. We can educate women about consent during intercourse. And we can educate them about what to expect from an OBGYN. What should they be, why would, what would be the reasons to go to an OBGYN and what should they expect? They should expect that if they're over the age of 14, that they can speak to an OBGYN privately and not have their parent there. They should understand that they can get contraception without a parental consent. And they can understand that they don't need a bimanual exam in order to get those methods. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Miriam Giahi is an OBGYN and researcher at the CU School of Medicine. She spoke with my colleague Avery Lill about unnecessary pelvic exams for young women. Teens who feel like they're under constant academic pressure are at greater risk of developing depression or anxiety. Pushing teens to excel can also increase sleep deprivation. Using technology in a bedroom during the day actually corrodes your ability to fall asleep at night in that same bedroom, even if the tech isn't there. I'm Jenny Brendine, and as CPR News has been exploring what's got teens under stress, we're also finding solutions. Look for tips for teens, parents, and schools now at CPR.org. This week marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Holocaust survivors want to make sure we never forget the atrocities of that era. Walter Plywoski of Boulder is one of those survivors. He's now 90 years old. He managed to stay alive in several concentration camps, including Auschwitz-Birkenau, but he lost his mother, then his father, in the camps. I spoke with him in 2016 about what he lived through. Before the concentration camps, his family was taken to a ghetto where Jews were rounded up and fenced off. I had a relatively happy childhood before the war. And here we were in the stinkiest, oldest, rottenest, barbed wire-surrounded environment with not enough food, not enough education, not enough of anything, especially not enough medication. You remember sickness being all or around? Everywhere. It was designed into the place. It was designed to kill by disease, which in many ways it made it more cruel than the concentration camps because we were still in family units and had friends and acquaintances and mothers had to watch their children starving to death and vice versa. What was that environment like? Were there Nazi guards everywhere? Um, Not inside, but there were Nazi agents, Gestapo and criminal police. It was the most hermetically sealed ghetto of all the ghettos in Europe. Did you see people who were beaten up or killed in this environment for not following the rules? Oh, yes. Every other day. The worst was coming across bodies of my friends and acquaintances lying on the street. Of your own age? Yes. And I remember still being able to have tears in my eyes because of it. Later on in the camps, the tears didn't matter, didn't show up. You lost the ability to cry? Yes. And if these... you cried, you were dead. It was a sign of weakness. Yes. What was the illness? You, you made particular mention of the illness in the ghetto. Tuberculosis, typhus, typhoid, all kinds of intestinal problems, but not enough food. 
You were there in the ghetto for several years, and one day in the winter of 1941, your father, whose name is Max, correct? Yes. He found a 10-year-old boy in a cold room. What was the boy doing? Holding the hand of his, frozen hand of his mother. Who had died. He used to be my cousin before the war, and we were fairly close before the war. And then after a few days when we didn't see him, we went over there to check on him, and that's what we found. Max took his hand, said, okay, you're coming with me, you're my son now. And he was thus made your brother, essentially, that day. Both of his parents died of TB. This young boy is, is William, is that right? His Polish name was Włodzimierz Fialko. A lot of the time, uh, people in the ghetto were hiding, and there were hunts. The population had gone from more than 160,000 people at one point to just 5,000 in August of 1944. You were one of those 5,000. Yes. And you were eventually put on a train. What was the ride in that train like, and did you have any idea where you were going? We had a pretty good idea where we were going. At least I did, because Max, my father, had contact with the underground. So he'd gotten word that concentration camps existed? His Gentile friends outside of the wire, also the fact that he worked with people in the ghetto that listened to the radio. And so in your young mind, what did you picture as your destination when you were on that train? I didn't picture the destination. I only kept thinking about the fact that we are out of the place, that I am facing death, probably, and all of a sudden I smell fresh air through the small opening in the freight car. And actually I was able to peer out onto fields that I hadn't seen for a long time. There was also a young girl from Czechoslovakia. We both looked out at window and held hands. She was dead on arrival. Yes. She went immediately to the gas chamber at Auschwitz? Yeah. She had an open sore under her chin that convicted her to death. What an odd mix of emotions it must have been to at once feel the freedom of being out of the ghetto and seeing fields again, and yet knowing that there was impending doom. It it sounds like a real mix of emotions. I was told specifically by my father to keep appearing very strong, very determined, and very aggressive if they want to pull me over to attack them physically so that you die with hot blood. He thought that was an honorable way to die, fighting. It's the better one. It has nothing to do with honor. It has to do with freedom. It gave me the freedom inside my mind of knowing that I carried the last decision, not they. I picture so often the scene of families being broken up immediately at the arrival. Was that true for your family? Were you separated immediately? The order was women left, men right. And I already knew what was taking place. And I wanted to run and say goodbye to my mother. And I didn't. Why didn't you? Because if I did, I would be convicting her to death to start with, and me too. It was immediately clear to you. From what I heard from my dad. Yeah, what the stakes were. Yes. 
Was that the last time you saw your mother? Yes. She was a very energetic woman with long black hair. When she let it down, it reached below her buttocks. What was your mother's name? Regina. Her family name was Fisher. How did you find out? What, when, when did you receive word that she was The gone? next day when we were facing the women's camp, there was a woman we knew who was not killed on arrival. And my dad was standing with me and with Bill to the side, made an empty space beside himself, and went to this woman. A and sort she of said, a gesture to say, where is the person who would fill this spot? Yes. And she just moved her hand across her throat. My father made sure that there was nothing hidden, because what you don't know kills you. Did you appreciate that as a kid? Of course not. I do now. How did you feel about it then? Slightly resentful. But he always treated me very adult. How long were you able to stay with your father at Auschwitz? Throughout Auschwitz. We were at Birkenau rather than the main camp of Auschwitz. All along? All along. And Birkenau had had been added, in a way, because Auschwitz ran out of space. And and Birkenau was... Auschwitz had a very small gas chamber. And they built Birkenau specifically for mass production of death. Life expectancy in Birkenau was two weeks. And so the tattoo that became that symbol of um, having been at a concentration camp... That wasn't given to you because it was such a factory of death. That was an advantage. How so? Because you were not immediately executable. If you had the tattoo, it meant... You had a job. They wanted to keep you around at least for a period of time. Yes. Describe the living conditions at Birkenau. There were huge wooden barracks, sometimes with wooden bunks in several tiers up, and no breaks between the beds to speak of. No linens or pillows? Of course not. One blanket and a small sack of rotten straw. What were the days like at Birkenau? Awful. Almost daily there was a selection. They would look at you and say, we'll keep you still or not. Those who were selected were sent to the guest chamber. So did you ever strike up a conversation with a guard? One night in the... the, Let's get in effect. It was a quick conversation where my brother and I were beyond curfew and near the barbed wire, and there was a military policeman pointed a rifle at us. He could have shot us any time. I think I simply laughed at him. You laughed at him? Part of my being taught by Max. If you're in danger, laugh. Why? It puts the other guy off. It's unexpected. It's unexpected. So the guard said, do I understand German? And I said, yes. What are you doing here? We took a shortcut. We're sorry. Okay, disappear. That was it. That was it. Walter, back to Birkenau, what is remarkable is that you made it out of there alive. Yes. And so did William, your your brother. So did your father, correct? Yes. How did you make it out of a death camp alive? By showing up voluntarily for a transport to Germany. But it was like what we sometimes called German roulette, because sometimes they would say, there's a new transport to a work camp, and people would volunteer, they would grab them all and put them in a gas chamber, or not. In this case, it worked. 
And I actually had a conversation with a SS man, you know, most likely a physician. We were ordered to step in rows of five while he looked at you. And if he, if he decided you were too weak, he would reach over with his walking stick and put it on your neck and pull you off to the side, like a shepherd with a crook. Meaning that that person would probably be executed. Not probably, for sure. Mm-hmm. Or he would just point with a finger to the side. But all three of you made it onto progressive work camps in, yes. Ger- in Germany? Yes, and we wound up in Riederlow, which was a punishment camp. So you went from Birkenau to... Landsberg 1, Landsberg 2, Riederlow, Dachau Main Camp, to Augsburg, to Burgau, from Burgau to Turkheim, from Turkheim to Karlsfeld, Death March. Over how, how long a period was, were all of those transfers? Slightly less than a year. And so when you'd land in a place, you had no confidence that you would be there for very long, I guess. Well, there was also a, an advantage being in a different place. How so? Because they would look at you and you didn't know enough. The notion that any one person had a lot of information about what the Germans were doing, that was a threat to the Germans. And so it was a threat to your life. Yeah. And so if you didn't know a lot, you were safer. You didn't want to stand out from the crowd, but if being treated as a crowd, you you can only save yourself by standing out away from the crowd. What happened at Riederlow? Well, first when we arrived, we had to run a gauntlet. SS and trustee couples with clubs and rifles on both sides You had to run between them maybe 30 or 40 feet while being beaten. If you fell, you were dead. Then we were held without any food or water for almost 24 hours in an empty barracks, then assigned various details. And what saved me there was there were two guys who were Polish Gentiles who wangled for me a job assignment being a runner between the camp and the SS, Hmm. carrying Important information. It was at Riederlow that your father decided to speak up to power. Yes. What happened? He died. But he died on his feet, and it was his final illustrated lesson how to behave. You witnessed this? Yes. What happened? Max screamed at the camp commandant extremely insulting German words for maybe a minute. We all froze. Nobody moved, including the commandant. Then the commandant grabbed a shovel and beat Max over the head with it many times. In front of you? I jumped in in front of Max and begged to stop. He said, okay, he had enough. He knew me from being the runner. On April 15th, 1945, the camp you were in at the time was bombed by the Allied forces, and that was your chance to escape. And suddenly, you and William find yourselves in the midst of the U.S. Army. We escaped. There was some shooting at us, and we slunk around to an abandoned German anti-aircraft unit where I ate the very best meal of my entire life. 
There was food there. Still on the stove, a pot about a foot and a half in diameter, and maybe two feet tall, full of German filled issue corned beef and potatoes and mushrooms and... Whoa. Also, we found clean clothing, German Luftwaffe uniforms, and we bathed in DDT. To get rid of the lice? Lice and fleas. We're eaten alive. Everywhere, in every camp, that was the case. So at what point do you run into Allied troops? Okay, after we, we bathed in DDT and put on German uniforms, we only kept our striped jackets. Always thinking. We don't want to appear too German because we were headed for the Allied lines. Mm. But we had steel helmets and potato measures. I had a Schmeister machine pistol. So you had a helmet and you were armed? Yes. Okay. And so after about two-mile march towards the shooting, all of a sudden a whole bunch of funny-looking soldiers jump out from a ditch to the side and tell us to raise our hands and drop our weapons. They marched us to their field headquarters, and there was a sergeant from Chicago who spoke. We refused to speak German, pretended we didn't understand, so as not to be taken for very young German soldiers. As any kind of threat, right. And he said, hey, he told the other Americans who we were, that we were Jewish Poles, told us, throw away all this German shit, we'll give you American shit. <laughs> when did you first feel safe again? Right there. Ninety-year-old Holocaust survivor Walter Plywoski of Boulder. We spoke in March of 2016. Monday was International Holocaust Remembrance Day and 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.